Get in the Gouda. Death by DVD's exploration of Phantasm IV. Oblivion. On the last episode... I, Alexander Nash, was taken by the Toe Man. I barely escaped myself. Dwarves are all over the place. There's a horde of the undead coming out of the crypt. I gotta get back to the Cuda. Coming for you, buddy. That tall sucker doesn't know who he's fucking with. As I was burning rubber to get away, one of those fears surprised me. It flew right into the Cuda. was a gunner, but then suddenly, it was right in front of my face, and poof, I was in the desert. A memory from the depths of my mind, maybe somewhere I had been, maybe somewhere I had loved. A place I once knew. I saw Alexander Nash by a hearse. Hundreds of dimension forks surrounding him, and I knew where I needed to go. By the next night, I had driven a thousand miles into the wasteland to a place called the Funeral Mountains. That's where I Alexander Nash was. When I found him, he had just come from one of those dimension forks. I knew something was wrong. I wasn't even sure it was really him. He told me the tall man was coming, and he was coming soon, and we didn't have much time. As we prepared for attack, I knew this was our only chance to talk about Phantasm IV, Oblivion. A movie made after the sad realization that Roger Avery's Phantasm 1999 was not going to be made into a film. A movie where America would be a burned out wasteland ravaged by the tall man, filled with death and disease and destruction, Reggie venturing into what is known as the plague zone to save Mike, and so much more we will talk about later on. Maybe. What we are left with instead is Oblivion, which isn't as grand as the purported 1999 was supposed to be, but still a magnificent piece regardless. I'd say the only disappointment is... No monkey? Yeah, no monkey. That really is kind of the soul-crushing thing about this. We had Timmy in Phantasm 3, and I'm not saying that the child looks like a simian or anything like that, but in Roger Avery's Phantasm 1999, Reggie's sidekick, it was going to be a little capuchin. Am I saying that right? I don't know why I put so capuchin. much... I put a lot of emphasis on the P there. A little squirrel monkey. It was going to be this tiny little cute thing that I assumed help him kill dwarves. It does sound a little bit ridiculous and possibly could be one of many reasons this movie didn't end up actually being created and come into fruition. But without all of that, if Roger Avery's movie had been made, we wouldn't have Phantasm Oblivion. And I, I've not read the script. Obviously, the movie wasn't made, but 
I don't know what you could make that would be better than the ending we get with, with Oblivion. I think this is, next to the first Phantasm movie, the best Phantasm movie, but it's also the best Phantasm movie. Like, <laughs> it's still the best. Yeah, because I think a good portion of it has to do with how much time we've spent with all these characters over the years. And this one I have always described as bittersweet because it's very depressing at times. It gives you a lot of new information that, again, takes you more places and goes nowhere. But at the same time, with the uh, kind of the ending we are given, it kind of is a revelation on to kind of where Coscarelli was going with this whole story to begin with. I think personally, a lot of other people think it just goes no place and there's more questions than when we started. Yeah, because it's phantasm and there always be more questions than when you started. But the fact that he didn't have a budget and it was shot over kind of a nights and weekends situation and it has a very small cast. What, like five people are in this movie in total altogether. The entire, uh, crew of actors is like i think the actually credited cast is reggie bannister a michael baldwin angus scrim bill thornberry heidi what's her nuts uh heidi marnhout yeah that's her name heidi marnhout and the good old bob ivy yeah and like what works about this film is that it is very desolate uh you can add that into where the tall man is taking the planet and that the fact that the world is kind of starting to turn into a dried out husk, uh, that's kind of irrelevant to me because we've kind of shied away from all these, like as Roger Avey's script is going, this kind of apocalyptic vision and we're given a very personal story and an apocalyptic vision of that. And I find it incredibly heartwarming because it shows the extent of where Reggie is willing to go for his friends. Sure. We, you know, we take a diversion into, Reggie needs to get laid land, as always. He almost does this time. It's the saddest venture with a female in the Phantasm series because everything's going well. The chick's into him. Jennifer enjoys his company. And then whammy, she's got... And this happens to guys all the time. I'm sure you can relate when you take a girl home and she's got tall man's fears for breasts. They pop out and they really wreak havoc. It sucks for Reggie. You, he gets cock-blocked. His day sucks. This movie begins with him telling Jody to fuck off, essentially. He doesn't use such harsh language, but he tells him, you guys ruined my car. Every time I try to help you guys, it just sets me back. I'm done. I'm not going to help you and your brother anymore. Yeah, but Reggie can't stay away because he knows this is, I mean, this is his fight and this is what his, uh, the entire purpose of his life has been even since the beginning before he even met Mike and Jody, that this is where he was always supposed to end up. And... We have a Michael Baldwin playing Michael in the desert, and he's learning new things about himself uh, while he's driving this kind of hearse into infinity and learning where his place in this whole story is. And if you want to get into the plot details of it, he learns about Jebediah Morningside and the fact that the tall man really originally was human until he made a dimensional fork and he steps back and he's some sort of alien type being or some being from the future or another well, I dimension. Think something's really cool about all that, though, because you're left with a lot of people can complain about this, but I guess it's something I think is appealing about the Phantasm series. You're left with more questions than you are with answers. So this this gentleman, and we'll talk more about him, I'm sure, in a little while, Jebediah Morningside, goes into his time machine. It's a man that has created a time machine with an obsession of death. All he wants to do is maybe cure it or... or turn it around. We don't really know his directive or what's happening, but he seems like a fairly pleasant, 
okay person. He seems like his. Would will... you like some lemonade? Yeah, I mean, he he offers Mike lemonade when he first encounters him, but he seems genuinely like he's for the good side. When he goes into the Dimension Forks, is it him left inside? Is there some creature that looks exactly like him that comes out, or is it taking his body or his essence over? We don't know. We have no. Well, I, see, I prefer to think of it as that once Jebediah Morningside steps through the uh, dimensional fork or the giant steampunk machine, as he's created in, in uh, this film, that that is when when the, the tall man comes back through. That is when reality ceased to exist anymore. That is no longer. Even in the 1800s, it's no longer reality. Since the existence of the tall man, reality has been turned on its head and it has continued to be turned on its head from then on. It's like nothing in the world makes sense or is reality-based at all. So that could even mean this is also the birth of Michael. This could also be the birth of everything to where there is no like actual reality at this point and it's just what the tall man has created in this new reality. Which sounds confusing, but it's really not. And we learn a little bit more about Michael, the fact that he does have somewhat tall man powers. He creates his own silver sphere out of car parts to uh, to attack the tall man and blow him up in a car, which is just an amazing stunt by Bob Ivy, letting a car blow up on him. Well, we also see at some point, too, that the tall man and Michael have encountered each other before this. And they've obviously, if that's the case, are going to have encountered each other after this at some point. The tagline for this movie, something I think is really appropriate, is death is not the end. Something the tall man says and lets every single character know. This is not the end, and this is a realm that I control completely. And we get to see Mike and the tall man, I, I guess in the Civil War, Mike's being embalmed. He's faced off with him time and time again, time continuously coming forward, and all things will end the same way, looking like the tall man winning. Yeah, uh, again, tall man representation of death or you know the reality of life creeping up on us and taking us out because there is no escaping that there is no escaping the tall man no matter how many times you kill him he will always be back because death cannot be killed death will always take us at some point and there's no fighting it but that doesn't mean you give up mike which is what Mike inevitably does in all these films. And Reggie always has to come and bail his ass out because Reggie understands the most important thing is you continue fighting, but you can never win. That's not the point. The point is to fight. What do you win? You win a fight and you continue to just fight and fight because that is what you do. And that is kind of the whole purpose of the idea of the world of phantasm is you continue to push on even though every odd is stacked against you and it's it doesn't matter you're going to lose but you don't just give up you continue and you continue on and always and you will always go after mike no matter what that's one of the unfortunate things when it comes to looking at the plot and the story of phantasm 4 is what we have is reggie is alone Reggie is constantly trying to find Michael, figure out what's going on with the tall man, and make the world a better place. He doesn't want the world to be ravaged by this plague and anything to be destroyed. And Michael, for the most part, has been more or less selfish with almost all of his actions up until now. And we get kind of a return to the macho Mike from part two, where he finally takes matters into his own hands and comes up with a scheme. The problem with all of this is what you just brought up. His scheme is to win it. 
there's a definitive yes and or no. He didn't even leave room for error. He didn't even come up with a conclusion that, what if this doesn't work? What's my plan B? This is in it to win it. And by doing so, he, again, is risking 100% the life of Reggie. But while we go on this venture with him and he starts becoming self-aware of his own powers or that he, too, may be something similar to the tall man, you brought up last week that he almost is a inversion of the tall man, the absolute opposite of him. Jody appears, and we already have established and know his return isn't the best. And in this time period, he seems to completely alter reality. He tells Michael he didn't die in the car accident, though Michael has clear-cut memories of him and his parents going. But this now raises even more questions, because Phantasm is about a little boy whose parents died and he's left with his brother. But his brother actually died, but so did his parents, and at what point did any of these happen in intertwining realities? The mixed footage, mostly being previous footage that Coscarelli didn't use for the original Phantasm, and now, now allows us to open up what reality is real. We don't know even what world we are in or who... You have to go back and even start realizing the series. Well, did they go through one of those dimension forks in this movie and never come out and it's a different world? And that's the constant question you're asked. When you go through one of these things, what's the insurance and guarantee you're going to come out the same place you went in? No one ever Or the guarantee that you are the same person you were when you went in. Yeah, it's something we keep having to... We're getting toward the end of Phantasm Month here, so we're referencing other shows. Maybe episode two, maybe episode one, I said something to the effects of... You know, even four or five years ago, that's a completely different reality and a different perception and a different idea of who you were compared to right now. So it's not such a far-fetched idea that they're going to all these different dimensions and it's intergalactic and they're going to space. Maybe it's just different realities. Maybe it's just different visions of themselves. If Mike ends up going back to himself as a 12-year-old, that obviously isn't the same Mike that is filled with pain and woe and suffering, that's defeated by the tall man, that is defeated by the world that has no more hopes, lying dead, bleeding in the desert. They're, they're not exclusively the same. They're almost completely different entities at that point. The real brilliance of this film, and talking just sheer on a like filmic level, is the fact that Coscarelli decided to take deleted scenes from the original Phantasm and write a script around some of those deleted scenes. Well, you know, really, I think a lot of that comes down to the glory of Phantasm 1999 failing. If it wasn't for that, I don't think... And, I mean, I'm not saying this is historically accurate, but... Phantasm 1999 was a very, very elaborate script written by Roger Avery. He had just come off winning an Academy Award with Tarantino for Pulp Fiction, so it seemed really likely that he was going to be able to get the money to do this, and the screenplay, the idea, what they had written was mil like not a couple million, like 20, 30, maybe 100 million. It was a massive, massive budget movie. And this is before even the, I always say their name wrong, the sisters that did the Matrix series. This is before they really kind of pioneered the, you know, early 2000s use of CGI. So most of this was going to have to be practical effects, a lot of money, and it just never got greenlit. So having all these fantastical ideas, a lot of things that were borrowed from Roger Avery that ended up in Oblivion, Coscarelli really had that kind of uh, jaw-dropping, light-turning-on-in-your-head experience of, shit, I've got all of this footage that I just never used that has just been sitting I can actually make it mean something now. Yeah, so, I mean, you really have to, to take Phantasm Four as a phoenix sort of thing, that it is coming out of the ashes of Roger Avery's script, and if it wasn't for Avery, I don't think we would have what we have. And, and you've said this before, I started the show with it, Man, this very well may be the best Phantasm. You can never say a sequel's better than the first movie. I guess that's a movie faux pas. 
But fuck it, this is one hell of a ride, and this, to me, is much more emotional than the first film. And that's what its key is, is the emotional component of it, is Coscarelli being able to take that old footage and write this new script around and give that old footage actual meaning to where it was just like like the, the cut-me-down boy. If that was in the uh, the original script, or the original uh, film, where this they uh, Coscarelli filmed this hanging scene, of uh, the tall man and Mike was supposed to cut him down and this whole thing. If it was in the original film, it wouldn't have as much relevance as it does in this film and what it means for the Mike character that, well, that didn't happen, did it? And maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Michael's thinking about these things. He's going, he's basically time traveling through his past and experiencing these things again and realizing that he doesn't even particularly know what reality he has experienced. And he's, like calling back things that may or may not have even happened. Well, Mike ends up saying that to Jody when he appears for the first time in Phantasm 4. Oh, I remember mom and dad, your funeral, and Jody's pleading with him. No, it was a trick. The tall man took me. And it all works so well because we have footage of the tall man taking Jody, and it's all the way from 1979. Everyone's got thick, full hair, and it's really. As a fan, when you're watching this, I think what is, is more emotional is not so much what you're experiencing in. You know, all of these characters are your avatar, so when they feel pain, you feel pain, but it's the fact that just a second ago you got to see Bill Thornberry a little bit heavier set, his hair's thinning, and then boom, it's 1979 all over, and he's getting out of the CUDA, and he's got the leather jacket on, and you're transported emotionally back to that. Even if you weren't in the fucking 70s and didn't have cool, poofy hair, <laughs> you, you, you feel it. You feel like you're there with them being transported and lost in this ever-growing reality that continuously keeps overlapping. And it's almost like... Once the tall man came, like digging on your idea, once the tall man came into our existence through Jebediah, it's almost like reality had a ripple effect and all these different strings and all these different versions of realities began overlapping. And that's really what the dimension forks are. When a reality overlaps, you get this fork that lets you travel through into wherever else or into the next. Sliding doors. All these different places that history could have gone and did go just not with you you went on another path but that path still exists and through the dimensional forks those paths are visible you can go back and visit them and like experience what you and another reality actually did experience and that's what's so kind of confusing to a vast audience about phantasm is you have to stop looking at plot details and just go for the emotional component that's really available in these movies. So when we do get to go through this different reality with Mike, and it also goes uh, to bring up the, the theory that we've talked about in the show before of Mike doesn't remember shit in like a complete and cognitive way. He's having a hard time remembering what was reality and what is fiction. So his memory, kind of like the film Spider that Hank has done a full show about, of just your unreliable narrator. Mike is an unreliable narrator at times as well. Maybe more reliable than, say, somebody who has schizophrenia like Spider, but, I mean, it's along the same idea frame of maybe all these things that Mike experienced in the first Phantasm film didn't even happen that way. Maybe they were just his imagination, maybe they are just his dreams that he experienced in the original phantasm. And this is how he actually did remember it. Maybe the tall man was just a weird, creepy guy that he projected a bunch of shit onto. And what's great about phantasm four is that it really 
goes more in depth into those ideas and kind of drops a lot of the action of the second film, a lot of the comedy of the, the third film, and goes right back into the dream mystery reality bending of the first film. That's why it works so well as a companion piece for the first film. And just the ending alone of Reggie putting on his ice cream suit again, traveling through Dimension 4 to to continue to help fighting for Mike's reality, his sanity, to save him, even though he's just a gold sphere now, he's still going to go and try to save him. And we travel back in time where Mike, riding on the ice cream truck with Reggie in the actual 1970s, hears himself, like, beaming away into the, the ether and just, oh, no, it's just the wind. With, a, like, a sly smile, knowing full well that that is him in some sort of future reality or an alternate reality. Like, basically letting himself know that no matter what, everything's going to be okay. Me and Reggie are always going to fight together. I always felt that it was Reggie saying into the nothing, you're not dead, Mike. And that's what Mike hears, that Reggie is hearing himself say it and ask him, what, what is that? Did you hear something? And Mike smiles knowing, no, I'm not dead. You're right, Reggie, knowing that no matter how awful this movie ends. And I was thinking about this the other day. We've been doing this really grand Phantasm Month thing, and it's it's not super inclusatory to people that have not seen Phantasm, that this really is kind of a fan service thing. And it it's... I'm, ex- I'm, I'm thinking by the... I'm, I'm figuring that you have seen the films, and that's why you're listening to this, but those of you that haven't, it's been just so so erratic. Confusing as fuck for you. Yeah, and it's, you know, because we, we start the show pretty much talking about the end of the movie, and then we're working our way throughout everything with theories, so it's kind of rough right here because we've been going for, like, 20 minutes, and we're, we're about to talk about the big conclusion to this film. So maybe watch Phantasm 4 before you go any farther with this. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five seconds. Mike dies. I mean, I take the end of this movie as almost a, a complete reflection of this reality being diminished, and that's not good enough for Reggie. He's still going to do something about this, and it's it's him echoing into the great unknown that uh, you're still alive in some way, in some form. You're still alive. That eternity, that spirit, that hope, energy that can't be destroyed, you're still alive. And that brings almost a romantic philosophy to the entire Phantasm series that no matter what, and you can you know really apply this to your own life, no matter how bad things are, maybe one of those twinkling stars you see at night is a different reality where things are going a little bit better, or you're lying, dying in the desert. We finally kind of get to the core of what the gold sphere is. It's, it's not just a machine it's not just a monster that the tall man wants but when he takes it out of mike his his words to reggie is i'm dying and the tall man turns and kind of scans and looks over the land and realizes i've won and he's taken his entity his life if mike is the opposition of the tall man then that means he is the light he is all things good he could be the one weapon the tall man can use to bring forth doom and you can just translate that to once you give up hope once you start once you stop dreaming you really don't have anything else going on for you. You're just a drone. You just exist whether you like it or not. Well, see, I don't even look at it as the tall man thinks he's won. I think the tall man has finally taken the sphere. And as much as he's realizing he's won, it's more of I've I've taken the false presumption that Michael had that he was alive to begin with at all. That this 
reality that he has forged around himself, I've made that finally crumble, and Mike is actually starting to realize who he truthfully is. Well, that's what he says to Reggie. I mean, uh, this this final face-off against the tall man in the middle of the desert, uh, the funeral mountains, they call it. Reggie tries to kill the tall man, his shotgun's not loaded, and he, he grabs him and is choking Reggie, and he begs, and he asks, what, what's this all about? Why are you doing this? And the tall man responds, it's all in his head. So what does that even mean? I mean, where are, are we in the dying throes of Michael remembering his life, or is his reflection of not being able to deal with his fucking parents and his brother dying all in one summer just really turned into this chaotic, psychotic episode? It's the reality that Michael has created for himself. And then maybe the tall man has finally folded that reality in and maybe we can get back to actual reality. Maybe Michael died in the car wreck with his parents. Who the fuck knows? I mean, that's even a possibility. But when you're getting involved in a series that the name is Phantasm, and it's also quite apt that Coscarelli apparently insisted to always start the uh, the trailers for a Phantasm film with an explanation of what a Phantasm is. Phantasm, the delusion of a disordered mind, a phantom, a spirit, a terrifying motion picture experience. So it's, it's kind of tempering your preconceived notions of like, you think this is a horror film, but hold on, this isn't just about ghosts, this is about ideas, this is about um, kind of ethereal concepts. Um, so please don't lock yourself down in the idea of reality because this is more than reality. This is, this is phantasm. This can go absolutely anywhere and it does and it goes everywhere. And I personally could have been happy if they had stopped with oblivion. I think it has a, it has a nice bookend feel for the series. Phantasm five does have some interesting things in it. I'll admit that, but it, I, it doesn't have the emotional component that I think four does and just how emotional four gets. It's a really nice ending to this series. Five does have some emotion into it as well. Don't get me wrong, but I think it just has a lot of, it's very scatterbrained at times. Um, knowing now after watching it, that it was originally going to be like maybe a web series and it feels very episodic at times. It feels like they didn't have a full concept of where they're going. And then they kind of, threw a patchwork around it to make it a film that makes a lot of sense. But the patchwork they threw around it actually, I think is the best part of phantasm five as opposed to the little vignettes that you get, because those just seem almost pointless to me, but like all the stuff with Reggie in that film that does resonate with me as well. And like, and it does fit in with the series as a whole. Um, Cause I could care less about the weird, bad CGI Armageddon shit that's going on in Phantasm 5. I care about the the, the character component because um, it just resonates so well with what's happening, especially in 4. As the tall man always says, this is not the end. Next week we'll be talking about Phantasm 5 Ravager, but back to Oblivion. I think regardless of there being a Phantasm 5, Oblivion is the perfect ending, and for me the series does end here. It's not that 5 is an afterthought or a reflection, but I think gears change. You can take the entire series as being... Reggie's memories, especially if he has something like dementia, and that's what we're presented with in going into Ravenger with his character, that he is suffering from dementia and isn't remembering things correctly, so it's these really chaotic dreamscapes. 
Michael dies in Phantasm Four. He's gone. He's dead. And Reggie goes into the Dimension Fork, into the unknown. We don't know what happens. We don't know where he goes. The fifth movie starts off pretty accurately with Reggie years later still in the desert, but none of that truly matters. And I think it does. I mean, I don't mean to say it's snidely. When it comes to the core story, and it's not like this really plays a part into things, but Phantasm V wasn't written by Don Coscarelli. It wasn't his brainchild. And I think when it comes to the series, when part four comes to the end, you have, I was bitching about this on the last episode, all the answers that you need. You you can let your brain go wild with what actually might be happening, but Michael's dead. You you see as the camera moves into his eye the reflection that we're moving into another reality. Is this where Reggie has gone off to? But was Michael ever really alive in any of these films? Was anyone, though? I mean, there's too many questions to even have answers for. I think Reggie was. I don't know about anybody else, though. Well, we establish, and it's 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 for a fact, that Jody died in the car accident. He's been dead since 1979. The tall man obviously has been using his vessel. He used his brain for a sphere in one movie and then managed to reanimate his body. Maybe he brought it back from the planet. It doesn't really matter. We now know that these dimension forks can take you anywhere and can do anything, and that time might not actually matter. How the fuck are they aging? If Jody's been dead since 1975, why is he aging? It doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense, though. And there's a lot of nuances, like Reggie has a different color shirt on in almost every single scene in Part 4. Is that because as Michael travels, we're going through so many different realities? Every time Michael goes through a dimension fork, Reggie's shirt changes colors. The tall man has a constantly different colored badge, or tie pin, rather, on his tie. Is it Michael's quest, his lack of memories, or is it Reggie constantly changing his memories? We'll find out more on the next episode of Death by DVD. But with this and the conclusion of the movie, I really take it from Michael's standpoint, and I see it as, even if he did die in 1979, then this is the erratic crazy dreams that are happening or maybe he died in the coma in between part two and part three and those are all the bizarre things that are happening in his head before he finally goes to the light in that sequence so a jacob's ladder situation yeah i mean there's so many things that you could take this as but all i know for certain is that michael died mike pearson died in the desert that wasn't good enough for reggie that he traveled into the beyond he went into the unknown to find a help to find a cure he's essentially uh, this is something We've been saying the whole time that Mike is an inversion of the tall man, but really Reggie is, because the man that created all of this, Jebediah Morningside, his entire quest, it seems, was to cure death, to solve the pain and the woe and the misery and the darkness and the shadows that everyone's life is cast in. That's all that Reggie's been trying to do the entire time. He's not related to Mike or Jody. Jody died and it really sucked, and his parents died and it really sucked. He didn't have to take care of Mike. He has chosen to do this his entire life. This is part of who he is. And in this last scene, the very last bit of Phantasm Four, he goes into the unknown because he can, because he still believes in saving this person. He really is the opposition of the tall man. He is all things light. He is all things good. He is really the saving grace in a world of darkness, the one thing that the tall man would want to destroy. Well, he's life because he's the will to live. He is, again, knowing full well that there is no escaping death. Well, he's sure going to make like be positive that he's not going to quit fighting death. And that's kind of what we all do every day. We all know that we're going to die at some point. It's going to happen randomly. Could happen in 20 years, could happen in 20 seconds. Point being, though, you don't lay down and give up knowing that, knowing that life is kind of fucking futile to begin with. 
that's what Reggie is. Reggie is the force within us that keeps on living and keeps on playing music in her weird ass ice cream store that we've created, even though we're like free spirited, weird hippie guys. Sure. I'll open an ice cream store. That'll be okay, but I'm still going to play my music. I'm still never going to let my dream go. And that's the the goodness in us all is who Reggie is. And probably in real life, too, I'd say uh, that that would be who Reggie Bannister is as a man is. Just a free-spirited, like, fucking cool dude who just loves life. I don't see a lot of acting in some of the Phantasm movies, especially when Reggie's behind the wheel of the car, when he's just naturally in conversation, or when he gets attacked and somebody pours yellow shit into his mouth. It all seems so real, it all seems so natural, that I think really Reggie Bannister and Reggie the Ice Cream Man are pretty inclusive of being the same person. He ain't acting! That's just who Reggie is. And how do we know that this actually isn't Phantasm? I mean, how do we know that this isn't something in Don Coscarelli's head and you're actually listening to a special feature or something on a Phantasm disc and Reggie, the real man, is actually the ice cream man? I mean, we don't know. That's the fucking glory of Phantasm. You can even start doubting your own reality. We could just all be in Don Coscarelli's head. And honestly, it's pretty fucked up that... I have to pay taxes, and I'm living in somebody else's head. <laughs> I don't know where to go from there, man. You've backed me into a Coscarelli hole. But again, so much of this is about the nature of reality, and it seems so much that 2 and 3 were a little bit more reality-based, and that's in big fucking air quotes, reality-based, and 4 really takes it out of that kind of fake reality and really puts it into this almost mythological um, ethereal kind of battle between light and darkness that the original phantasm was and that's why I think it bookends so well is it just it despite it being incredibly different it feels so much like the first one and it relies so much on who those characters were in the first film not so much of who they've become over time but who much how much of who they were and who they are now and how those two things kind of intermesh that they are basically the same people, even though lots of shit has changed over the years, they will always come back and fight for each other no matter what, because as much as Mike is a 40 year old man who is accepting his death, he's also a 15 year old boy who has his whole life ahead of him. And is ready to fight anything that comes along his way. We are all things along that spectrum. We are the boy and we are the dying man. Well, do you think Mike even realizes at the end of this movie while he's laying there in the desert, what's going on that he is perishing or does he really take it as, I don't think he cares. Yeah. I mean, he could be just knowing uh, uh, this is forever. What we are allowed to see of the tall man and Mike's interactions throughout time is it seems like this has been a constant moving thing and then it's all moving towards something else. And now that the tall man has the gold sphere, we don't know what that other thing ever will be. You know, in one idea, the tall man is one and he's gone back to wherever he has gone. I mean, maybe he's going back to his home world or he's going back to a different place in time and we'll never know that things completely restart. And that's some of the glory of the, the things that we see. In Phantasm 4, that Michael's going to commit suicide at one point in the film. And even though he's in the middle of the desert, there's a, uh, a tree. We don't know how or why it's there. Mike goes to hang himself, and then all of a sudden this all makes sense, that we see a different reality. We see something from 1979 that happened to him 
obviously Jody's behind the wheel of the Himikuda. They get the tall man and they hang him from this tree, capturing him there for, I guess, until the tree rots or the rope breaks, one or the other. None of this is part of our reality. None of this is what we've established and that we know to be true. And the tall man tells us right then and there, I control this realm. You can't die. Death is not the end and you'll never be able to escape. And that can kind of bring in things like the idea of a soul and, you know, being reborn. We don't know what he means. We don't know at this point at, at all what the tall man's gain is or what Mike is trying to get away from. The tall man extends his hand to him and wants to work with him, wants to let him be a part of something, but why is Mike so hesitant against it? Reggie's just doing what he thinks Mike wants to be done, so his whole entire part in this is just protecting and being there for Mike. But why is Mike so against it? What What is... What is so wrong, I guess, with joining sides with the tall man? And I mean, we know that he's going to cause plague and destroy the earth and is going to fucking kill everyone. And Phantasm 1999, apparently the Mormons in Salt Lake City have built this giant crypt under the ground where they're burying all of their relatives. And this is going on since, you know, the 17th century or so. So the tall man has a giant mine where he is mining all of these people to be part of his army of the undead and... Uh, only New York City and California exists, and in between that is the Plague Lands. And Reggie finds out that Mike is in the Plague Lands and has to give up his life to go in and find him. Very similar to everything that happens in this movie, because that's kind of what I feel happens at the end. Reggie gives up his life to go into the Dimension Forks to save Mike, even though he's given up completely in front of him. So why was he so against joining the Tall Man when it would have spared everyone he loved, at least in one reality? Well, and... In another reality, maybe the tall man is just Macaulay Culkin taking Tim Robbins up the stairs. That's also a very strong possibility that let go, Mike. Let go and experience this new reality that's on the other side of this door. Because it could just be heaven. I don't like that as much. I don't like that idea because it ends up being kind of pseudo-religious well, that's kind of what part five does, because it opens the door that Mike was that same sort of emphasis for Reggie, of guiding Reggie through life to let go and to go into the light. So either or, you can take that with part four, or you can take it with part five, but I'm with you. I don't really like it that much as an explanation. No, because it just it, it, it feels a little cheap, um, and it feels like, again, a, kind of an ultimate ending, and I, I don't like the idea of an ultimate ending. I like the idea of them being warriors of truth justice in the american way like fighting across different realities and different dimensions and continuing to always fight some like for the most part never aging in some realities aging until they die and in some realities always being you know whatever reggie was 33 38 in the original phantasm and might being 15 oh no god in the first phantasm movie they were all in their their early 20s i don't think anyone was more than 10 years older than Mike at the time, who was, I think it was his 13th birthday when they were filming that movie. But, you, you I, know, you just made I me think know. of something, though, that, that is kind of an interesting concept here. But memories don't age, and you can't control memories. So let's say your mom has a memory of you, and when she thinks of you, she's going to see you in that memory, and you might be 13 in that. You exist in that reality to your mother from that one trip to the beach you guys went on, and she remembers you happily running down the sand, something you might not even remember. People have all of these concepts and memories and thoughts of you that you don't even know, things that you have long forgotten, something that could be 
just as silly as somebody saying something the wrong way that for the rest of your life you'll always say it that way because it just brought you joy that one time and consequential memories to other people that mean the entire world to you. All of Phantasm could just be taken that way, you know, and, and Mike says that in part four. Remember the day before he came? He could be anything. There was an ending for the very first Phantasm movie that was shot that showed everyone at Jody's funeral and the tall man was the preacher. Even using that for the metaphor that I'm trying to build right here, the tall man is just an idea of death, darkness, woe. It could be the man that buried his brother and his family. Remember how great things were before he came, the day before he came, and it's just a picturesque, coloring book-style day, just all the greatest colors in the world where him and Reggie have fun and he sneaks ice cream from his truck and everything's beautiful. It could be the day before innocence was lost or the day before he had to grow up and take responsibility, and all of this is just a snapshot reflection in Reggie's mind of, of these people back in 1979 or 1988 or, God, I got into, I was in a coma for two years and here's my memory of, of all the weird dreams and all the awful things that happened when my girlfriend Liz died. Because all this happens to him. You know, Mike falls in love in part two and Liz dies. That affects him for the rest of the series. You brought that up in Phantasm 2 episode that he never allows himself to become close to anyone. He even pushes himself away from Reggie. And in another reality, we've just a b smoked a bunch of DMT and on the uh, Joe Rogan experience talking about the nature of reality. Because that's essentially what Phantasm is. Can you believe Phantasm. it? He turns into a pickle! <laughs> I smoked a bunch of DMT and I'm pretty sure I talked to God. It's that kind of thing, folks. It's That's what Phantasm is. It's... It's a naturally occurring via art mushroom trip of where you get to experience different sliding realities and you get to experience it through characters as opposed to your own life. And when you do eat a bunch of hallucinogens, this kind of shit happens to you. It might not get all this fucking weird and dark and have killer dwarves in it, but it sure as fuck can. What type um, of drugs are you taking? Because, I mean, I want to see the killer dwarves and the spheres. Like, I, well, who's your dealer? Do you know a guy? I mean, because I'm not getting that type of stuff. But, it, it, I mean, that's it's essentially the, the places these films go is just experiencing different realities, thinking about examining those different realities, thinking about places we have been, could have gone. That's what Phantasm truthfully is. And that's why, as a series, it's interesting. and. It is a horror series because it does focus on horrific imagery and concepts, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be a horror series. It can just be an examination of human life throughout the ages. And the fact that Coscarelli had to, via budget concerns and just working on different projects, made one of these films, like, made them so separately, made them, like, so many years apart actually adds to the overall mystery of everything because we get to experience these characters, these people, in different stages of their lives and different aging and how they've moved through actual life into this kind of weird reality that Coscarelli has put them into. And it's it's just kind of fun to, like, well, where's Reggie at now, 10 years later? Is he still fighting? And we, we get to look through that, see what that could be like. And if you don't look at Phantasm, if you look at it so plot-heavy, you're just missing everything. You're missing the point of everything. Just like another Coscarelli film, Bubba Hotep. If you're looking at it of like, why is Elvis fighting this mummy? 
that you've totally missed the point. The point of it is to watch Elvis fight a fucking mummy in a retirement home and how kind of interesting that could be. Stop focusing on why Elvis is actually in their retirement home. Is it really him? Who fucking cares? It's all about the ride, Bill Hicks. That is what Phantasm is. Well, Mike says at the beginning of Phantasm 3, we can never trust the things that we see. And at some point in the series, Jody lets Reggie know that things might not make sense now, but they might make sense later. Maybe. And there's a big emphasis on that, and it's even used as a joke, with Michael saying it to Jody in annoyance. Nothing makes sense. That's life. That's reality. Nothing at all is going to be coherent. You look at how these movies were operated and how they come together. Maybe we have too many questions. Maybe we should be thankful that, hey, we got an end. We got something out of this. The glory about Phantasm is that Don Coscarelli is not an asshole. He doesn't look at fans and go, I made the movie 10 years later, okay? Just deal with it. He allows you to grow. He allows you to take all of these things. And I think as an artist, it's really terrific because he's somebody that's realized that he touched people. He touched their lives. Reggie knows that. Bill Thornberry knows that. Mike knows that. It was something that Angus Scrimm, I think, felt an enormous amount of pride with how many people's lives had been touched and changed for the better, I think. Especially if you grew up alone and you didn't have an older brother or a younger sibling, you could really get attached to these characters. You could really look at Jody, and when you find out that he's a bad guy, it hurts you. It hurts your heart. It's upsetting. You want all of these things to work out, just like you want things to work out in life. So using it all as one big metaphor for life is the only thing that I think truly makes sense because that's exactly what it is and it's the struggles of all these people 10 years later. Phantasm 4 kind of returns to Phantasm 1 in a familial aspect that when they made that movie, everyone working together really knew each other. They had worked on Don's previous two films, including A. Michael Baldwin. His his birth into being an, an actor working in L.A., being what he is now, is because of Don Coscarelli. And you come into 1998, 1997, when they finally got this movie made. Four people get credited, but really you had Don Coscarelli's wife, Gigi Bannister, Reggie's wife, all of these people coming together and working, an incredibly small family unit that went out to the desert and they did the best they could. A. Michael Baldwin didn't just want to be an actor for this film. He returned as a producer and got his hands really, really dirty. A lot of the things that happened in this movie are because of him working his ass off, and none of these people were being paid much money. K&B Effects decided to do it. I don't know the story ridiculously well, but there was a function, maybe a horror con or something, and Reggie was hanging out with Berger and mentioned to them, you know, we're going to we're going to shoot another one of the best horror films ever made. We're going to finish the series, and Nicotero was sitting nearby and turned to him and said, have Don fucking call me. And they signed on because of the love of doing it, because of the love of Phantasm. You, not just you and I, but these other people, these names, the, the creator of Creepshow and The Walking Dead and blah, 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 blah. They grew up loving this just the same. One of Nicotero's big break jobs was working on Phantasm 2. All of these people were touched by it. They were touched by Coscarelli. They were touched by the story, and they came together, and they ended up making... It, it's... Uh, I don't want to say the, the saddest movie in the series, but I think the saddest, most provocative, artistic movie in the series, and I referred to Phantasm 3 as kind of a western, but it's kind of like a Technicolor 1960s American western, and Phantasm 4 is a very lonely spaghetti western where our hero is going out to the desert on a suicide mission to, you know, die, and that's really what we get. It's a very lonely, this sounds weird, but an organic movie. 
everything feels incredibly natural throughout the first, like, half of the movie. The tall man never even seems to exist on the same screen as everyone. It's like Angus Scrim is a part of the shadows. Like, he's a part of the set design, and he just kind of exists as a force of darkness. And then you kind of get into the desert where... How do you light like that, shooting in the desert at night? So that's all kind of a technical thing. But there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of emotion behind all of this, and I think it's just the genius of Phantasm. It's all your imagination, or is it Michael's, or are we just living in Don Coscarelli's head? And ultimately what Phantasm 4 about is about is letting go and realizing that sometimes it's okay to let go, that sometimes our work is done and we can let go. We can let death take us. If that's, I mean, if that's because, I mean, sometimes the ride is just, it's fucking over. And there's no point in hanging on anymore. So there's just so many different philosophical concepts that Phantasm works with. And each one is different in each film. And that's also why the series has kind of lasted so long. Because it's always a new and interesting idea that Don's working with. And like KMB just signing up to do Phantasm 4 for nothing, for basically no pay, it's because they're part of the Phantasm family. They want to, like, for this thing to continue on. It's probably the most prolific fan-based horror film series there is out there. If, like, if you did, like, a GoFundMe for a new Phantasm film, I don't know what they could turn up on it, but, I mean, if the small group of people who are into it, they're really fucking into it. Onto the commitment of just the fans, I think from two onward, most of the vehicles, the Kudas, the hearses were all people that just loved the first movie that had made it a part of their life. It was a culture that they completely understood. So as things progressed, you really have a, a, a beautiful fan community with people that come together year round to celebrate what Phantasm is. And you move into Phantasm Oblivion, uh, it's a testament to these people. And I think a lot of the reasoning why Don continued the series and wanted to give it a wholesome end was because of that. And, like, Roger Avery even has a brief appearance. He plays a cadaver in the Civil War scenes. But that's just a show. You know, he's a good sport. No matter what, people were happy for another Phantasm movie. And what's really neat about the internet, at least as of the recording of this episode in 2021, you can find on Phantasm.com and old forums people's posts from 1997, 1998, excited about a new Phantasm movie and being crushed that Phantasm 1999 wasn't going to be made into a film and the excitement. And it's kind of fun to know that these people 20 years ago were sitting on the internet just as you might be, how you could have found this show, Googling Phantasm Podcast or something or another, and still loving it, still reveling in it, still finding excitement in it. After all these years, we can sit here for over an hour and just ask questions back and forth. What do you think about this? Do you think that happened? What's what's the reality of all this? And that truly is the art of Coscarelli. I mean, the man itself, he needs to be taken incredibly serious as a beautiful artist. Because after all these years, I'm a different generation than you, and you're a different generation than the people who originally saw Phantasm. And we can still go down the line and introduce people to it and talk about it like it's the first time we saw it and have as much joy and woe and heartache. I mean, I'm willing to say Phantasm 4 is one of the only movies I will weep at the end of. Never fucking fails. I cry every time. Grown-ass man, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to cry. And I love it. Every time I know, I feel my nose burning and I'm going to start crying. And it's beautiful. It's being able to feel that emotion 
and knowing I've shared it with so many other people, including Don Coscarelli and Reggie and Angus and, and all these people that I grew up loving. It's wonderful. As a film series that I've always loved throughout the years, like done many marathons one after another in one day and to uh, have to deal with that best <laughs> best description of it deal with people who just don't get it and think it's dumb or think it just doesn't make any sense and it's just like i don't what, what's the point in this it's it's so hard to explain to them what makes phantasm great so if you just don't get it you just don't understand you don't understand the kind of joy the internal pleasure that this series has brought its fan base and just so much of it has to do with the emotional component of the characters so if you're not interested in these characters then you're just not going to be interested in any of the stuff going on because it's just going to seem like a mishmash to you it's just going to seem like a bunch of crazy fucking ideas thrown into a film series which it is at certain points. It is a bunch of crazy ass ideas. But if you can't appreciate those ideas and appreciate the kind of the madcap style of what Coscarelli has done with his career over the years and just done so many different styles of movies and ideas behind movies and has just always done something interesting each and every time and not been so hung up on titles or blah he just he he likes to work he likes to fantasize he likes to make films and that's why i always enjoyed him as a director is because he always just seems like he's having a hell of a time doing what he's doing he didn't like making beastmaster so he didn't do that again so he moved on to do something else crazy survival and quest survival quest which is a it's a crazy that. movie in itself and just the fact that don just continues to innovate and make interesting and wild ass movies over the years it's just it, it always warms my heart he's just one of my favorite directors of all time yeah i said this on maybe phantasm one maybe phantasm two that i speculated mike was the perception of don coscarelli and that very well may be true when we're talking about phantasm one or phantasm two but looking at oblivion and how the series ends i think despite the Reggie character being a perfect vehicle for Reggie Bannister and obviously being wrapped and melded around him as an individual, I think Don Coscarelli is Reggie. I think the Reggie we've been talking about, this hopeful, this man, this hopeful person, this man filled with dreams that's never going to stop that, and the last minute, if he's got to go through the tuning forks, if he's got to go into hell, he's going to do it. He's going to do whatever it takes to get a movie done. He's going to do whatever it takes to have a good time with his friends at the same time too though and it's one of those beautiful things he figured out how to have an immaculate life he does what he loves for a living you work your entire life slaving away you die you you do it for what meager possessions and nothing that truly matters at the end of the day or you find something you absolutely love and you manage to feel some sort of fulfillment you got to be jealous of a guy like Don Coscarelli for doing something like that but at the same time, with the Phantasm series, he has been able to take his entire career and, and show us the wonders. You too could do this. It's not very easy getting $3 million, but that's the budget for Phantasm 3. With creativity, the right people, and a lot of hope, you can really make something beautiful. It doesn't have to be a movie. Use that for a euphemism to get the fuck out of bed if you want to, but seriously. All things are possible in all realities. What's to say you can't go into them? What's to say you have to be who you are right now? You could be something different tomorrow, and you could grow. You could change. You can move. You can 
I don't know, man. Let love in. Or just have an ice cream cone. It's all good. It doesn't matter. And it's all phantasm. That's the explanation that Reggie Bannister gives to everyone when they ask, well, hey, in part two, when this happens, what does that all mean? It's phantasm. And that's what you're getting from us. Phantasm. That's the explanation. It's phantasm. (laughs) Fucking five hours later, we get the same (laughs) goddamn response as everybody else in the cast and crew. It's phantasm, man. Come on. Sorry, guys. I mean, really. There is no other answer. It's just that this is the ride. Enjoy the rides you're on because phantasm is the ride of life. It's going to have weird plot twists, weird turns, places you didn't ever think you were going to go. Well, that's fucking phantasm. All of a sudden, we're in the Civil War. All of a sudden, we're in another dimension. All of a sudden, we're in a a, uh, convalescence center. It's just like it's going to go different places, and it's going to take you to those places in an emotional sense. Be prepared to experience that emotional like resonance within you because that's what it is. Stop worrying about plots. Well, as of the recording of this episode, We've had a lot of feedback on this Phantasm series, and it's it's been really positive, reflective stuff, and it's made me really excited, and I kind of feel maybe like I presume Don Coscarelli might feel when people talk to him about this series, that I've gotten messages. All right, well, you guys talked about this on the episode, but what do you think about this scene? Oh, keep doing that, guys. I love it. I, I love talking about this, and what's more important is that you guys are getting a kick out of it. Phantasm is old. This isn't like we're covering new, unheard of material. We're just having fun, and that's the beautiful thing about Phantasm and the series as a whole. You can never stop having fun with it. And as you were discussing, the crowd of people that don't get it, that insist on trying to find a linear aspect and looking at all these deep-seated reasonings, I feel bad for you. You just gotta let go. You, You gotta really let go and look at how the story is told. You gotta let go. It's gonna just destroy watching movies for you. Take it for what it is, and it's a ride. It's one hell of a ride. It's a story. That's it. It's just a story. Maybe it makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. But did you have fun experiencing the story? That's all that's important. The whole point of Phantasm is that you're getting in the CUDA. And you're with Reggie, you're with Mike, you got a four-barrel shotgun, and you're about to go kick some ass. What's wrong with that? Just get in the car and kick some ass. Which is pretty much what the ending of Phantasm Five is about. Stop worrying about what you perceive reality be and just go with whatever feels best to you. So I guess this brings us to the end of Phantasm Four: Oblivion. And I guess that means it's almost time for the tall man. You can hear that sound. You know he's about to come through the gates. Just get behind me, buddy. I'm not going to let that motherfucker get that ball out of your head. Which is kind of weird. You got gold balls in your head. We need to talk about that. That's an odd thing. If he comes through this gate, I'm going to introduce him to my four best friends. (laughs) The funeral is about to begin. Oh, shit. He's here. Over here, you tall son of a bitch. I've been waiting for you. Just stay behind me, Nash. You think that when you die, you go to heaven. You will come to us. Enough talk, tall man. Show me what you got. What? Uh, what do you 
What do you want? <laughs> Podcast man. It's all in his head. Dying, Hank. Nash. Nash. You're still alive. Don't let go. Don't let go. Don't let go. I'm coming right back for you. talking about the greatest film series to ever fucking exist, the Phantasm series. And this episode begins with Don Coscarelli's masterpiece, 1979's Phantasm. Hey, Nash, grab me a nutty buddy and tell these people about Phantasm. Grab you a what? A, a nutty buddy? Is that, is that an ice cream or did I just make that up? You talking about a drumstick? Yeah, whatever, a fudgical. They're all Cornetto? fine. Cornetto? Oh, ah, yeah, Cornetto. Now it makes it sound like we're English. Probably the greatest thing about the Phantasm series in itself is a gentleman named Reggie Bannister. I don't think anyone ever on this planet is as cool or will be as cool as Reggie Bannister. And I mean, that's a big statement. Steve McQueen, not as cool as Reggie Bannister. Paul Newman, not as cool as Reggie Bannister. These are stone cold facts. And really, without Reggie Bannister, I don't think there would be Phantasm. I don't think there would be anywhere near as much love for Phantasm without Reggie. He he's the king man well not only is he the king he's just as far as horror goes and you always you know you have an everyman reggie is like the coolest everyman everybody can kind of relate to reggie you're still alive hey did you did you hear something just the wind <laughs> 